So Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have uh, now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered, through, uh, entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was uh, in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if uh, the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, good morning, welcome. Lovely to see uh, some visitors amongst us, some friends that can come when they can or visiting family. Welcome, really good to see you, welcome back. Um, part of me embracing my middle age is increasingly reading stories in newspapers and in the magazines that come with newspapers. I am middle-aged, thank you for that look though. Um, 
to do with human interest stories. I've come to that age where in past 10 years ago, in my 30s, giving you a clue, I used to flick over them and get to the sports pages or flick over them and get to technology, even gardening. I was middle-aged before my time in my 30s. But just recently, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a few stories that have stuck out to me. Um, one um, pop artist and one um, actor that have told the stories of significant heartbreak within their family that I know nothing of. So there's two stories that really are very common about how an actor has fallen out with their daughter. And so although um, he gave birth to her, so to speak, gave her life um, with his first wife, he's not seen her since. And uh, he said, that's okay, it's her choice. And then there's the pop star who uh, has made it a deliberate intent to disinherit his daughter, um, there's an idea, to disinherit his daughter because he never really got on with her. And it's an absolute tragedy that these two stories show the significance of broken family life that I find very hard to relate to because I came from a supportive family and a nurturing family. If there's a problem, I would pick up the phone to call someone who cared for me and who loved me, and I can still do that. But just imagine if you're part of a family that's broken down for some significant reason and your mum or your dad deliberately do not want you to call and they are determined not to call you back. There is such significant enmity. Something big has happened or something small has happened that's been made big by significant people in your life. Knowing that there's someone who doesn't want to speak to you, that there's been a breakdown is a tragedy and a deep and a significant and potentially a life-altering sadness. But in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is saying there is an even greater tragedy. Here's a slide. There's an even greater tragedy and an even greater breakdown. We've been looking at the first two sections of the book of Romans so far that have told us our need of justification. We are in trouble. We're in the dock. We're in this heavenly uh, judicial scene where God has all the evidence against us and against humanity and we haven't got a hope unless there's intervention. That's the first parts of chapters 1, 2 and 3. But then we've seen the great news of the gospel, chapter 3 verse 21. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. There is hope and God who has all the evidence against us comes from being the prosecutor to being the accused, so to speak. He takes our place so that he is both judicial but also the justifier. And that's the great news of the gospel, unlike any other religion on the face of this planet. But so what? Paul begins chapter 5, verse 1 with a big so what. What does it mean? That's the next section going through to chapter 6. Because Paul has said there is a tragedy, not between families, but between humanity and their God, our God. There's been a huge breakdown. But God does want to hear from us. And God has done something significant, the most wonderful, the reconciliation of all reconciliations has occurred. And it's happened because of the cross. And these first 11 verses of chapter 5 that we're going to focus on, well, John Stott, who's written a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, says it's about joy. It's about happiness, the difference between happiness and joy. That's what I want us to think about. These three things about joy because of the reconciliation that God has taken all the initiative to secure. Let's get into it. Number one, joy. Well, joy is important. Joy is important. Look at where the sentence begins. 
verse 1, where the chapter begins rather with sentence 1. This is the foundation of the whole of Romans 5. Therefore, here's the so what. Here's the cash value of the justification that God has achieved in Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Verse 1, if you're a Christian this morning, you should not be happy. Because happiness is passing. Hood and I were talking about this on Thursday. What's the difference between happiness and joy? Happiness is an emotion that passes. You can feel happy whether it be you uh, have enjoyed the sunshine yesterday, you enjoyed family, you even enjoyed that thing called a PlayStation. That will disappear when you get married, I assure you. Or certainly the amount you play it should get lower. Unless you've had a very... Yeah, we'll stop there. (laughs) Here's the point. When you are justified with God, it's not happiness that passes. It's deep-seated, deep-rooted, God-centered joy. That's the difference. It's not emotion. It's a historically rooted and founded truth. You were once enemies. I read an article this morning about the Tutsis and the other tribe that are in Rwanda 20 years ago. And this wonderful photographical piece in the New York Times, I commend it to you, taking photos of people who had horrendous things done to them in the name of ethnic cleansing. And yet there is reconciliation It is absolutely remarkable photography um, and a wonderful editorial piece, New York Times. Check it out. Now you are enemies, but now you are friends. You have peace with God. That is what Jesus Christ has achieved. There's no more enmity. There's no more distance. There's no more separation. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus. That's the first part that removes happiness. It's joy because of the cross. Verse 2a, the second half of verse 2, we are standing in his grace, literally through Jesus. What Jesus has achieved, God has accepted us in his Son, not in our own merits because of what Jesus has achieved. His cross work has achieved for us a new standing in himself. We are secure in him. We are to abide in him. We are rescued in him. It's all in Jesus not of our own merit, not of our own efforts. And so, we have a very different experience than the one I missed yesterday on Hook Road. The Carlins and Stokes often see each other year by year as we go into central Epsom or we meet each other um, at uh, Hook Road because Her Majesty, at the end of the derby, zooms down there at breakneck speed. She's just about in the law, but she writes it so she can do what she wants. There's a police outriders who are there. There's a helicopter that goes over uh, above her to make sure no naughtiness happens. Yesterday, I missed it. But sometimes you see Queen Elizabeth bombing by in her roller, and that's it. It's not an audience with the Queen. You just see her. You might get a wave if there's a lot of kids by you. You won't get it if you're just an adult by yourself. But you might get a royal wave and that's it. That is not what this is talking about. The cross of Jesus, verse 1, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We are standing in his grace. That means that is a status that Jesus Christ has achieved so that now it's not God driving by in his heavenly Daimler roller. We have an audience with the king. We can stand in the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ has achieved and no one's going to say you shouldn't be here. No one's going to say that's your lot, move along please. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus so we are welcome into the presence of God. 
That's not happiness, but it should fill you with joy because it's a standing and a status that's been achieved and that no one can take away from you, Christian friend. You're accepted because of what Jesus has achieved. And so what should your Christian life look like? Well, look at verse 2b, the second half of verse 2. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 11. Let's look at them in turn. Verse 2. And we rejoice, that word joy again, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice, joy, we also rejoice in our sufferings. That's a tricky verse. Verse 11. But we also rejoice in God. The hallmark of the Christian life, when you understand what Jesus Christ has achieved and won for you on the cross if you're a Christian, must be joy. You must be rejoicing in what Jesus Christ has achieved. It's a standing and a status that God has won for you. So it's not happiness that passes, do you see? It's a solid, historically rooted, Christ-centered, cross-centered assurance that Christ is one and that will never be taken away from him or therefore from you. But that's not what the philosophers or the thinkers think. They say, if you want to know serenity, if you want to know peace, if you want to know and pursue happiness, there is happiness.org, by the way. It's a complete waste of time. Don't look at it. But understand the gospel. Philosophers and thinkers think that if you want to know joy, you will never achieve it because joy centered on a person or a thing or an object or a career, a relationship, um, a postcode or a happiness, an amount of money, you'll never ever find it, philosophers say, in this life because our hearts, our hearts are like a human joy vacuum cleaner. Whatever you set your affections on, if you're in the pursuit of joy, that's a humanly made thing, that's a non-God-centered thing, you will suck all the joy and happiness out of it and it will never be enough. And so if you're a Buddhist, if you decide to follow a Far Eastern religion, they say, okay, don't pursue things in this world for joy. You need to pursue joy by detachment, by detachment. That means don't give your heart to anything. The only way you'll know peace is if you don't pursue joy per se, it's a derivative of something else. But then there's a problem, says C.S. Lewis. If you decide to protect yourself by never pursuing joy and happiness, if you decide that you don't ever want to get wounded by pursuing somebody in emotive love, if you decide to take your heart and put it in a casket, an airtight container, to make sure that it never breaks, Lewis says, it will become unbreakable, but it would also become impenetrable. It would also become irredeemable. If you seek humanly-centered joy, if you seek earthly defined joy and happiness, if you try and detach yourself from the world and kind of pursue a nirvana in some spiritual experience that's not the God of the Bible, it will never work. And what's more, it will affect your heart, says Lewis. If you say, I'm never going to give myself to anything, I'm going to lock up my heart and make sure it's safe. That's not a neutral thing. What will happen is your heart will get hardened. It will become almost impenetrable. Now, we could stop there and you'd be very depressed. Joy is important, but here's the hope. Christian joy is unique. Christian joy is unique. That's what this passage says. That's what the gospel teaches. Christian joy is unique. 
for two reasons, point number two. The first one is, if happiness is earthly and is based on emotions and situations, joy is not. And let me prove it to you. Christian joy is not based on our circumstances. So you're happy when the sun is out, you're seasonal, you have sad, you know, seasonal adjustment disorder as soon as uh, October comes, right through till about June, and that one week of sunshine for Wimbledon. Verse 3 says this, look at this, we also rejoice in our sufferings. This is a tricky verse. It does not say you rejoice for your sufferings. I just thank you so much that this hardship has come upon my life. Just thank you so much that my work colleague is just um, maligning me. That's just great. No one says that. It's not masochistic understanding of suffering and hardship. The suffering here is speaking predominantly about the suffering that comes for standing for Jesus Christ in a fallen world. But there is also hardship. There's also loss. So how do we understand this verse? We also rejoice in our sufferings, in the midst of our sufferings. Read on. Verse 4, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Then the chain begins. Perseverance, well, that's going to produce character. And character and perseverance, well, that's going to produce hope. Do you see the link that must never be broken? Why can you have Joy, not happiness, in the midst of severe trial and suffering. Because you have a rock-solid, God-centered confidence that God is at work in a dark and difficult situation, even if you can't see it. It's the marinade that brings the sweetness, the fragrance of Christ to the Christian believer. It's the sandpaper that brings about the fruit of the Spirit. And how does that happen so often? through dark valleys, through trials, through suffering. That's when it happens most of all. If you uh, are just plain sailing, if you're there on the sea of life and the sun's on your back and the wind's in your sails, you can say, I'm a Christian. I believe in the hope of eternal life. I believe that Jesus died for me. But really, you don't need to lean on him very much because the sun's out and the wind's in your sails. But friends, you know, when the sea gets choppy, when the sun disappears behind a cloud and there doesn't appear to be a silver lining, at that point, your faith, Tim Keller says it's a bit like the Coke machine. You put your quarter in to get the Coke machine out, but the coin gets stuck and the vending machine is now a source not of joy and liquid refreshment, it's a source of frustration for you and so you need to whack it with your fist on the side. That's what suffering does. It takes the truth that God loves you, that Christ died for you, that there's hope in eternity, that the Holy Spirit is sufficient for you now as it points to him and it makes it real to you. Suffering knocks down the truths of God and makes it real to your heart. When the sun is out or when the sun has disappeared, S-U-N, not S-O-N. But friends, Christianity is so different from religion because in the midst of suffering and difficulty, if you're working hard to please God because you're not a Christian, because you think by your own moral efforts you can save yourself, there's no security, there's no assurance. You've just got to keep working hard and it looks like God has disappeared and perhaps he has. But in the gospel, you are safe and you are secure. 
And Paul soon will write, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a security to the Christian life. There is a safety to the Christian life because one day you will share in full of God's riches and glory. But the second part of the fact that Christianity is unique when it comes to joy is the fact that it is now and not yet. It's now but not yet. This word hope that appears, verse 2, this word hope is very important and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul said four chapters long, your rescue plan will never work, but God's rescue plan has succeeded. You are justified by faith in his blood, chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Therefore, there is a certainty about the future. You cannot see the future, but God knows the future. And this word hope is not a word to describe uncertainty. It is solid because it's based in the promises of God. It's certain because it's based in his character. The Bible uses hope in a very different way to the world. Hope in the Bible is life-shaping certainty of something you're going to have, but you don't have it yet. Life-shaping confidence and certainty that God has promised something, and he never breaks his promises. And so as we thought last week, you can take him to the bank, because God never breaks his promises. And so it says, verses 3 to 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. My father was a man of great tradition. And so it was pasta with ragu sauce. That was radical. It... Uh, <laughs> 20 years ago. Pasta and ragu sauce on Saturday night, followed up on Sunday by the roast. The best part of the roast, the post-church roast, was when my dad would carve the meat out in the kitchen with the same knife every week because it was the best knife. And I would go up as a kid and just try and steal a bit of the offcuts. Not the big kind of nice slices or whatever it was, pink meat or brown meat or whatever it was, but the little bits that were just a bit kind of falling off and I would try and steal a bit before he hit my hand. Hopefully not with a knife. <laughs> it's kind of an hors d'oeuvre. It's a taste. Man, that tastes great. I can't wait till it's on the plate and then I can really enjoy it and try not to be told off for eating it too quickly. This word pour out, this little phrase pour out, what does that mean? Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. It's a metaphor of emptying, emptying in full emptying something into our hearts. It's a way of expressing an experience. This is a way of saying something. We're going to have a feast in the future, and yet there's an hors d'oeuvre now, and it's real and tasty, but man, the food's going to be great in the future. That's my way of a food-centric person interpreting the Bible. There's going to be a feast. Isaiah speaks of that, but I'm salivating now. But there's real experience and real satisfaction right now. It's a foretaste of glory then, but you can know it now by God's empowering spirit in our hearts. 
Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, wrote it like this. Sometimes our spirits cannot stand the trials of life. So the immediate testimony of the Spirit comes to us saying, I am your salvation. And our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. This joy has got degrees, it's got levels. Sometimes it's clear and strong so that we question nothing. But other times doubts come in soon. See that? Christian joy is unique. God the Holy Spirit in the heart of every Christian believer sometimes gives us real new taste buds for the glory of God. We can't see the future, but we just taste it and sense it now. We enjoy Jesus Christ more fully at times. We get a, a more thorough, confident grasp of the gospel. So we're going through hardships, but we, we see and savor and sense the presence of Jesus Christ in that instance. Because Christian joy is unique. And all the things that this world offers that are good things, we must never be tempted to make the signposts the things that we focus on. Relationships, career, sex, weight loss, whatever it may be, that brings you joy. Enjoy them, but don't make the mistake of enjoying the gift so much that you ignore the giver. They're signposts pointing to God himself that every Christian will see one day in the city of God. Enjoy them but don't focus on them. Thirdly, finally. Okay, joy's a bit ethereal. We're up there. Let's come down the la ladder of abstraction. Where does Christian joy come from? How do we get it? Verse 8 and 9. Here's a beautiful little summary. If you're new to Christian things, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, please listen into these sentences very carefully. This is the great news of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This needs saying again. The God of the Bible is not cuddly. He's not someone there to meet our needs. It's not cosmic therapeutic deism. God is not like a divine butler. He's a God who demands and commands our worship. Neither is he a God who's angry if we define that anger as capricious and off-handle. But the Bible does describe with great seriousness God's wrath. God's wrath is his settled judicial opposition to anything that is unjust or evil. Sinful, the Bible says. The human race deserves punishment. Paul's been saying that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But now Jesus Christ has rescued us. Now Jesus Christ has taken our place. Now Jesus Christ himself has taken the wrath of his father on the cross. He took the condemnation. He took the punishment. That's the great news of the gospel. And that therefore brings us joy in two ways. Here are the two reasons of joy. You only have joy in your heart, Christian friend. And often new Christians get this so much more than more mature Christians because they forget. You only get joy when you see the magnitude of the danger that you are in. When you see the magnitude of the danger you're in, that's when you have joy in your heart, when you see the greatness of the rescue of Jesus. Imagine you're on holiday, and whilst you're on holiday, you get a few letters that come through the door, and a friend who's looking after your house says, oh, there's a couple of bills, I'll open them up. And they, you trust them to open your post, and they pay the debt for you. 
And uh, I could ask you, well, how should you respond to the fact that your debt's been paid? And you say, well, I don't know, because I don't know what he paid for. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, if it was uh, an envelope without a stamp on it, and uh, he paid a whopping 80 pence, because it was first or second class, tells you how often I use the post. It's 80p, you will say thank you, because uh, someone kind of misaddressed it, and uh, someone had to pay. But the second envelope doesn't deserve a thank you, it deserves a fall down on your knees, thank you for saving me. Because the second envelope was the envelope we all dread from HMRC, and there's back taxes that have not been paid. And this is a significant six-figure sum that there's no way you can pay. It's a debt that's so large, it's going to sink you. You're going to lose the roof over your head unless some, some miraculous intervention happens. And your friend who's a wealthy person opened the cheque and settled the score. They paid your debt. Now, a thank you, like an 80 pence stamp and a shrug of the shoulders, yeah, well, anyone would do that, to the six-figure sum being settled would be inappropriate, would it not? Because this is life-changing, life-altering debt. This is courtesy. When you see the debt that Jesus Christ has paid for you, it's not courtesy. It's eternity-shaping change. How should you respond to the fact that Jesus Christ has paid your life debt? You should fall on your knees. In adoration, in amazement, I stand amazed. Perhaps we should kneel. You should be on your knees thanking God for Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. That's, that's joy producing, surely. J.C. Ryle, old Bishop of Liverpool, says one of the reasons you get so obsessed over your financial debts and the troubles in this life and this world is because you do not yet grasp, he says to his people in Liverpool, the size of the debt that Jesus Christ has settled in your behalf. When you see that, you see how small these other trials are. Friends, the only real debt that will sink you has been paid for. Your sin is bigger than cancer. It's bigger than financial ruin. It's bigger than the loss of a loved one. The only debt that will really sink you is your sin. And Jesus Christ said, I will pay it for you. I will pay it for you. The real disease has been healed. The real debt's been cancelled out. It's been paid for. That's the magnitude of the danger that you were in, Christian friend. Non-Christian friend that you are in. Unless you trust Jesus. Here's the second thing. You see the magnitude of the danger you're in. You see the magnitude of Jesus' pain. You see the magnitude of Jesus' pain on the cross. There's a very strange passage in John chapter 16 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples just the night before the cross. And he takes the imagery of a lady giving birth and applies it to himself. He's saying to his disciples, this is going to be hard on you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to send a comforter, but this is going to be hard on you. And then he says something like, a woman who gives birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish for the joy that she's received. And Jesus says, that's kind of like what I'm going to experience on the cross. Great pain and anguish. I've been to and survived four births, just. The first one was the worst when I had a sugar low. I almost saw the ceiling lights and hit the floor. Thankfully, I took all of the food that was intended for Joe, ate it, and I was a new man. <laughs> Things haven't changed. But one thing I have seen is this. 
up until recent centuries, for a woman to go through childbirth was always life-threatening. It was always excruciatingly painful until this wonderful thing with that small needle, the epidural, that's about that small. Now that takes away pain to some degree. But women always have to go through tremendous pain and anguish if they are going to receive the joy of new life of a baby boy or a baby girl. Jesus Christ says this, for the joy set before me, I'm going to have to go through anguish and danger and pain and ultimately death of the cross. That's why he likens himself to a woman in childbirth. And friends, when you see how much danger you are in, when you see what it costs Jesus, that is fruit for joy. That's fuel for joy in your heart. When you look and you say, Lord Jesus, you lost all of that so that I could know eternal joy of knowing you. You did all that for me. I know my heart. You know my heart even more. You did all that for me. That's fuel for joy. And then there's verse 5. This is the key to joy. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes into our lives in a special way. Not an emotionally weird, not in a spiritually remote way, but he takes the truth of what Jesus Christ has done and he makes it real to us. We see it in kind of 3D. The Holy Spirit takes what Jesus does and says, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at how wonderful and powerful he is. And you get that sense, perhaps even the hairs on the back of your neck in a nice reformed Calvinistic way, as if God is speaking to you. And you feel joy because you know that it's true and you know that it's real, no matter what circumstances you face. There's two ways that the gospel gives you joy. Let's do the rest of the passage in two minutes. When you see the danger you're in, when you see what it costs Jesus, when you see what Jesus Christ has done for you, moving on from verses 12 to 21, you see how much Jesus Christ lost, and that gives you joy. And Paul, in his masterpiece of the book of Romans, says, let me tell you about one man and another man. Verse 12, he introduces us to Adam and Jesus. Beginning in verse 15, he contrasts Adam to Jesus. This is what one man did. This is what the other man did. Verse 18, he now compares Adam to Jesus. And we can boil it all down to verses 17 and 18. To misquote Churchill, who said, there is so much owed to so few. We can summarize the rest of the chapter to say there is so much owed because of one man, because of Jesus when you meditate on that truth, the danger we are in, the amount it cost Jesus, the fact of that Jesus Christ has lived and died for us, sometimes the Holy Spirit will take those truths and make them burn in your heart in a fresh way. And when you see that, you will not just know happiness, you will know Christ-centered joy. It's the hope of glory in our hearts. And that's only available because of the cross.